If Jesus dies, the disciples are going to grieve. Their joy is going to be taken away from them, sorrow. But when he rises from the dead, they'll rejoice and no one will be able to take away their joy. Why? Because you can't kill Jesus again. He's resurrected. He's conquered sin and death. He's ascended to the Father. He's coming again and no one can rob us of that. Hey, thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today on the podcast, we have a message from John chapter 16. This message will challenge us to think about where our joy is rooted in. So I encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 16 and enjoy this message from God's Word. Well, There's a biblical concept um, that God will often uh, take what seems to be a seemingly hopeless situation. And and right when in that moment things seem to be their absolute utter hopeless end where there's really no way out unless there's an intervention from God himself, we'll see that's when God seems to love, at least as we look through scripture, uh, we, we see he loves to intervene in those hopeless moments and just infuse this amazing turn of events as hope from the Lord comes and takes like an absolute sorrowful situation and he brings joy out of it. Uh, just think about some of the examples in scripture, and we're not going to exhaust this list, but if we just looked for a minute and just considered even in the book of Genesis, um, Joseph. Joseph is there in a pit and eventually in a prison and yet, when things seem completely hopeless, he interprets a dream, and it isn't, it isn't even right away, but eventually, he's promoted from prisoner to prime minister. He goes from the lowest citizen to the number two citizen of all of the uh, Egyptian empire. Uh, you look a little bit later, in my, uh, I'm doing a, a different uh, through the Bible yearly study this year, and uh, right now, I'm a little bit behind, um, and so I'm, I'm in Exodus. Uh, and running a little bit behind. But in Exodus, it just struck me recently how Israel's back was to the Red Sea. And there's really no hope. They're turning around. There's the Red Sea. They look forward. There's Pharaoh advancing with his army. They're dead. There's no hope here. They're either going to swim or fight. And what happens? Moses takes his staff, and God intervenes. And in a way you never thought possible, through the Red Sea, God delivers his people. He's faithful to take situations in his people's lives seem utterly full of hopelessness and mourning and sorrow and spin it around on its head and bring joy and laughter and dancing where there's sorrow. Just think of some of these verses. You can jot these down. They're not on the screen. You start seeing this in Scripture everywhere. Psalm 30, verse 11 is an example. Psalm 30, verse 11 uh, says, You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. Where I should have been weeping, I'm now wanting to dance. You've loosed my sackcloth, which is a sign of of mourning, and you've instead clothed me with gladness. Uh, Think about Isaiah 61, where Isaiah says there, he gives beauty for ashes, he gives gladness for mourning, he gives us the garment of praise for sorrow, uh, or for a faint spirit. In Jeremiah 31, almost the whole chapter uh, describes this when it goes into the new covenant. But in Jeremiah 31, 13, he says, I, God, I will turn their mourning into joy. I, I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Uh, you see it in the scripture, and many of us have experienced this same intervention that God 
um, seems to produce in our life. Nod your head in agreement if you've been at the 11th hour and there just is no hope in your life and God seems to kind of intervene and minister to you. Okay, good. Both of you have had that happen to you. Well, as we come to the passage this morning, what we, what we look at in this section of Scripture, because of the nature of God, the intervention of God, he's able to bring a seemingly opposite outcome from what we're expecting. And what happens here in this text is we have... Jesus' disciples with no clue what's about to go down. They've been with Jesus for three years. They've been walking with him. They've been learning about the kingdom of heaven. And uh, as we open John 16, we hear Jesus with them speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit. We learned that last week. And in that moment, they have no idea that Jesus is delivering to them the very last address that he's going to be giving his disciples, his closest intimate followers, before he's betrayed in just moments. Next week, we'll be studying all of John 17, which is the true Lord's Prayer. If you've heard the Lord's Prayer, John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Um, I want to encourage you to read it ahead because it's a large section of Scripture, uh, and we're going to hit on some of the main points. But read it this week, and we'll conclude our series, Last Words. And then we'll be starting a new series the following week called The Road to the Cross. And we'll get a picture as we lead up to Easter of the crucifixion of Jesus. But today, we're going to see how Jesus takes uh, four different ideas— and kind of turns them on their head. He spins them around so there's not a misunderstanding or a misconception. We're going to see that, that in all of the confusion of life, Jesus is our constant. And in the situations of life where, man, we just don't understand what's going on. Why is this happening in my life? Uh, Jesus comes in misconception and misunderstanding. And where there seems to be death, he somehow brings life out of it, a resurrection out of it. Where there seems to be darkness, he infuses light. He takes sackcloth and ashes and and is able to exchange it for joy and gladness in the life of his followers. And I have to say that on purpose, and I'll, I'll explain that and unpack that later. But sometimes, as we'll see in this text, we also have a faulty view of what it means to follow him, and so he has to clear some things up. So on the screen, here's our outline just for a minute. Um, we're going to look, first of all, in verses 16 through 20, at how their confusion will turn into understanding. The disciples are confused about what Jesus says. He's going to turn it into understanding. Uh, We just sang about it, but Jesus takes sorrow, and it's going to turn around into joy. Uh, Thirdly, we're going to see how figures of speech that Jesus spoke in will suddenly, for the first time possibly, become clarity. And there's an understanding, clearly, of who Jesus is and what he's here to accomplish. But unless the disciples misunderstand following him, He's going to take what they think is peace. Oh, we follow Jesus. There's always going to be peace. And he goes, no, let me turn that around. You're actually going to be persecuted. So with that as our outline, look at verse 16. Uh, Jesus says this. We just read it. And he says, a little while and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while and you'll see me. Is that clear to anyone? So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? "A, A little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. Verse 18, so they were saying to themselves, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. If you want to underline that phrase, we do not know what he's talking about, it's been 2,000 years and commentaries still don't know what he is talking about. I did a lot of study on this. They're all divided. What was Jesus talking about here with the little while? We're still wondering what he meant. Now, some have taken Jesus to mean that when he says in a little while, what that means is that in a little while, he's going to be ascending to the Father 
and he's going to be gone. And then in a little while, he's going to return. He's going to come his second coming. Uh, he's going to return to earth in the same way that he ascended from earth. Um, and, and that's possible. But I believe what Jesus was saying was this. He was saying within a matter of a handful of hours, just a little bit of time, I'm going to be gone. He's prepared. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be crucified and dead and buried. But within another handful of hours, I'm going to rise again. You're going to see me again. And so his disciples are confused, and Jesus turns their confusion into understanding. How? By giving them deeper explanation. Look at the next two verses. Verse 19. Jesus knew what they, uh, that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. And they're probably at this point all nodding their heads. Yeah, yes, that, that was what it was. That's what we need clarification on, Jesus. We have no clue what you meant by that. And so he says in verse 20, verily, verily, or truly, truly, you can trust what Jesus says. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. I think that's clear. He's not speaking about the second coming. He's not speaking about a long period of time before his return. No, he's speaking about the cross. The world will rejoice as the disciples are filled with sorrow. The world will say, we won, we conquered. Uh, Rome would say, there's another insurrectionist put down. Uh, Herod would say, yeah, that guy was confusing. Glad he's gone. Pilate would say, I know my wife had a dream, but I'm glad that this is all over. Uh, so the world would rejoice triumphantly in the same event that brought great sorrow to the disciples. But Jesus says, just so you know, your sorrow is going to turn into joy. Why would they be sorrowful? Well, of course, they'd be sorrowful because the one that they loved and followed, their master, was about to be crucified, arrested, and beaten, and killed. They're going to be sorrowful because the religious leaders who scorned and opposed Jesus uh, would seemingly win. Uh, they're going to be sorrowful because their hopes in the, the kingdom of God and the one who is here to usher in his glorious uh, kingdom perpetually seated on David's throne. He was about to be crushed at the hands of oppressive Rome. And, and they'd also be sorrowful because after Jesus died, they wouldn't really know what to do. They'd be looking around, now what? What do we do now? We can't go back to fishing, can we? We can't go back to what we were doing before. But see, Jesus takes their confusion and by speaking to them, he, he turns what was a fog into a clear understanding. That is often the case. Uh, I have headlights on my car, and uh, you do too. And often, um, headlights become foggy. And, and I just realized this as a, I just bought a, a new car for me. It's not a new car, but it's new for me. And I noticed the headlights are, are really foggy on the front. And so I wasn't sure how to clean it. I looked up a bunch of YouTube videos, and they're like, use toothpaste, use peanut butter. Uh, there's a bunch of solutions out there, you know, DIY. And so, I, 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 you know, if you drove by my house, depending on the day, one day I had the peanut butter, the next day I had the, the toothpaste. I had anything you could find, Coke. I was pouring Coca-Cola. I'm taking, I'm raiding the fridge for baking soda, whatever I can find to clear the fog. Um, but listen, it was, it was, it's never through neglect that the headlights get clear. Does that make sense? You got to do something. You got to put solution on them, scrub them, and bring clarity. It's through attention and intention that's what, what's foggy is made clear, okay? Uh, so what, what I mean by that is, have you ever found yourself confused about what Jesus was saying? Have you ever opened your Bible and you're con just confused? You read something in Scripture and you're just kind of in a fog. 
my question is, who do you consult when you're confused? Who do you go to? Uh, often, like the disciples, we, t- we talk to ourselves. We turn to ourselves like, I'm not sure what Jesus meant. What do you think he meant? And we turn to one another instead of actually listening to what Jesus says. Does that make sense? So, so anytime we turn to one another first for the answers before we turn to his word and look at all of scripture, well, we find ourselves, we may find ourselves more confused than when we start. I mean, honestly, though, how confusing would this have been to Jesus' disciples? Uh, you and I have the benefit of, of knowing, in the words of Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Anyone know that reference? The rest of the story, Paul Harvey? Yes. Um, it really doesn't make any sense if you didn't know that. In this moment, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Does this make any sense? Hey, guys, in a little while, I'm not going to see you. You're not going to see me. But then in a little while, you'll see me. I mean, they're like, is this hide and seek? Are we going to go temporarily blind? What's going on here? We don't understand this. They're asking the right question. What is Jesus saying? But listen, they consult the wrong source. They turn to one another rather than to the word made flesh. And often I think we can do that. We become confused uh, when we seek to understand Scripture and we fail to look at the fullness of Scripture, to what Hebrews 10 calls the volume of the book, the fullness. Uh, I know I've met with many believers over the years, and uh, they have questions about Scripture. I, I just need to know what this verse means. And often it's an isolated verse or a singular text that they're having a tough time squaring with. Uh, They don't know what it means, how to interpret it. And and what happens is um, the cults that are out there will take a random verse, a solo verse, and turn a doctrine out of it, right? And say, this is now a doctrine that we're going to um, live and follow. Um, But it's important for us um, not to do that. Neither uh, should we do what the postmoderns do, which is say, well, what does this verse mean to me? Right? Have you ever been tempted to ask that in a small group? Well, what does this verse mean to you, Charlie? Charlie, tell us what you think this verse means. What does it mean to you? No, no, no. We just need to ask, what does it mean? Right? We take obscure, standalone verses that don't make any sense by themselves. And what do we do? We compare them to other verses. We look at the context of when and where it was written, by whom and to whom. We zoom out to the chapter, then the entire book, and we look at other scripture so we don't erroneously misinterpret it. Listen, you don't go to the History Channel to learn about Jesus, right? You don't, you don't turn to secular sources to try to understand the, you know, the cultural um, Jesus. You don't go on Netflix and look up, I mean, let me search for Jesus. I wanna learn some things about Jesus on a documentary on Netflix. Um, we don't read, ladies, books like Jesus Calling to find out what Jesus wants to say to us. We don't do that. When we find ourselves confused, we listen to him speak through his word. We learned that last week. And the confusion that we have on the surface will become understanding. Now, we go there first. Do we need to consult other pastors, commentaries? Sure. And God has put godly, mature believers in our lives to turn to. But lest we start small groups and none of us know what we're talking about and we turn to one another in ignorance, we need to look to Scripture. That's my soapbox. I'm getting off it. Uh, Second misconception in our text, look at the end of verse 20. We read through it quickly, but Jesus said, you will be sorrowful, there's a promise, but your sorrow will turn into joy, another promise. Second point this morning, sorrow becomes joy. Jesus takes sorrow, and he's telling them in advance, prophetically, so to speak, that, hey, come in, you're gonna be sorrowful, but listen, something's gonna happen, you're gonna see me again, and that sorrow is gonna be turned around into joy. 
Now that sorrow will be short-lived. And to explain this, I think Jesus presents an amazing illustration that all of us in this room can, can understand. He talks about childbirth. Look at verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Any ladies here, don't raise your hand. Any ladies here ever get pregnant, have a baby, and that moment's coming. And you're like, can we just skip that, that afternoon? Can we just skip that weekend? Can we just... Can we bypass that and get to the baby? That's, that's what we're looking forward to. But we gotta go through some of that pain and sorrow. Uh, so Jesus says, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought or been born into the world. I love this. Jesus uses the analogy of a woman uh, in labor and the resulting birth of a baby. So the, the pain, the anguish, the sorrow that accompany labor, it's actually called labor, uh, is followed with the joy of the new baby. Um, this analogy was used frequently in the Old Testament uh, to illustrate the pain that Israel or a person would have to go through before joy or blessing could be experienced. If you don't believe me, look up Isaiah 26. That's a text that goes into this, Isaiah 26. Now, if you've had a C-section uh, with an epidural, what you're facing is fear. You're a little bit afraid to go into that. This is scary. And there's some pain involved as well. But if you've had a birth without any medication, right, without any localized relief, then you understand this a little more fully, the idea of giving a natural birth. You understand this. Can we, okay, go ahead and raise your hand. If you've had a natural birth without any pain medication, let's see, those are our warriors today. Men, I saw a guy raise his hand. That did not happen. Okay, there, you understand this a little more fully. The anguish <laughs> that went into that. I can only surmise that that's what you experience. Anguish. Um, the word here that Jesus uses for anguish in verse 21, uh, it encompasses, listen, both physical and um, mental pain and suffering. Um, I have yet, though, to meet a mom who introduces her children <laughs> by saying, yep, here's my firstborn. He's the one that put me through the mental and physical torment and anguish. So blame him. No, I've never heard that. Now, they might say, you know, I was in labor for 36 hours with this one, and, and that's kind of cute. But, but it's not like you look at him with resentment, like, well, I had to go through that weekend of pain because of you, you know. Love you, dear. Happy birthday, right? It's not like that. Uh, it's, listen, it's a very short temporal experience of pain, but it's one that's greatly overshadowed by the joy of the birth of the child. In a phrase, it's worth it. Moms, is it worth it? Is it worth the fear of an epidural, the pain of natural? Maybe don't answer that, all right. Jesus goes on to explain, verse 22, he says, so also you have sorrow now. You're, you're gonna go through that pain, the, the anguish, the torment. I've heard of some wives that you know, are grabbing the side of the bed and they're looking at their husband in the room like, it's your fault, right? And the jugular's coming out of the vein. I want to kill you for this, you know? No, no, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. What a promise. And no one will take your joy from you. Now, I want us to define the word joy. Please circle the word joy or rejoice. We just sang about it, experiencing joy. And here Jesus says their hearts would rejoice and no one will be able to take away that joy. Now, the word joy, we're going to practice this. It's the Greek word chara, okay, C-H-A-R-A. But you really got to work on the, the, the beginning of that word. You really got to get the cha, okay? This is not like cha, like Chewbacca, okay? It's not the cha. 
neither is it a ka like Kenobi, all right? It's more like a ha, like Lucas, okay? That, that's what, did you train your kids with Star Wars ABCs? Maybe not, okay. Let's try to Hara. <laughs> Don't spit on the person in front of you, please be careful. Now, the word kara means joy, it means to rejoice. Um, it's an inward disposition that bears outward fruit. Let me say that again. Joy is an inward disposition that bears outward fruit, but it's experienced from an outward cause. It's experienced from an outward cause. Now, the danger that you and I have is that we look for joy outwardly from a few different areas. We look for it in uh, circumstances. We look for it in other people. Uh, so I want this relationship to bring joy. We look for it in possessions, right? We think that clothing's gonna spark joy, and so we look for folding clothes in a certain way and getting rid of everything that doesn't spark joy. If you don't know that reference, good. Uh, we look for it in possessions or in our, in our absence of worry. Now, all four of those, Paul tackles in the book of Philippians, chapters one through four. He says, it's not found in circumstances. It's not found in people. It's not found in possessions, and it's not found in the removal of our worries. Joy is actually an attitude that's determined by confidence in God. In the case of the disciples here, confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. So church, it's not the situations in life or happenings that determine our joy. It's an overflow of a life at rest in the resurrection power of Christ. Incidentally, the word joy, kara, is the root word for a few other Greek words. On the screen, check this out. So the root word is joy, but charis or charis is the word we use for grace. We just sang about amazing grace. Uh, charisma or charismata are the grace gifts, the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives the church. You may have heard from a Catholic background of the Eucharist. The Greek word is eucharistia, and that actually means literally thanksgiving, the giving of thanks. And then there is uh, keratao, which I just butchered, but keratao, uh, keratao means to bestow favor, and notice that's the word where we obtain the word charity from, uh, where we bestow favor on others. Now, this is insightful. All of the spiritual gifts, all of the grace, all of the gratitude that flow out of a Christian first flowed into our lives by the person and work of Christ, right? So the joy that the disciples would experience and the subsequent joy that you and I experience is literally tied to Jesus. If you're placing your joy in anything other than Christ, then your joy is going to come to, it's going to have a shelf life. It's going to come to an end at some point. Uh, place your joy in a, in a relationship. I can't, they're perfect. I can't wait to get married. I don't know their last name yet, but it's going to be great. And, and we're going to get married and they're going to bring joy into my life. <laughs> I can laugh at that, right? Because then you get married and you go, who did I marry? This person is not bringing joy into my life. They're sucking it out of me. Yeah, someone's like, I don't want to laugh at that. I'm newly married. I don't know if that's something I can laugh at. But, but it's literally tied to Jesus. That's where joy uh, comes from. And so if Jesus dies, the disciples are going to grieve. Their joy is going to be taken away from them, sorrow. But when he rises from the dead, they'll rejoice, and no one will be able to take away their joy. Why? Because you can't kill Jesus again. He's resurrected. He's conquered sin and death. He's ascended to the Father. He's coming again, and no one can rob us of that. You can take our lives, behead us, kill us. Uh, that's something I'm not excited about, but that's not gonna take my joy away. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, it is most remarkable and instructive that the apostles do not appear in their sermons or 
to have spoken of the death of our Lord with any kind of regret. The Gospels mention their distress during the actual occurrence of the crucifixion, but after the resurrection, and especially after Pentecost, we hear of no such grief. Notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 23. He says, in that day, he's speaking about a future time, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, here it is again, verily, verily, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive, why? That your joy may be full, it may be a fullness of joy. Now, this right here is clearly a shift Now that Jesus is going to die and rise and then ascend, what he's saying is that you as my followers can now approach your heavenly Father and pray in my name. In other words, you're not going to have to ask me anything more directly, necessarily, because the Holy Spirit is now going to guide you into all truth and will speak to you through the counsel of the Word of God. Um, but, But notice that as they see the Trinitarian God in verse 24 answering their prayers... Jesus says, when this happens, when you approach the Father in my name, and we know what that means from the last few studies, we know what it means to pray in Jesus' name, we ask in his name, we go directly to the Heavenly Father, um, then we're going to see God answer our prayers. And Jesus says, when that happens, your joy will be a full joy. To use our vernacular, their joy would not be, our joy would not be a small sippy cup, but would be a huge Big gulp, uh, you know, you've got small, medium, and awkward at the store at this point. Uh, so because of the demonstrated power of God through the resurrection of Christ, listen, the disciples will have more confidence in their faith. And when that happens, they'll have more confidence in their prayers. And man, when God answers our prayers, we experience the fullness of joy. It's amazing to know that in Christ, I can approach the Father Uh, and he answered our prayers. I can ask and receive. Now, sometimes it's a yes, sometimes it's a no, sometimes it's a wait, but I believe that he hears our prayers and answers. Now, in verse 25, Jesus helps clear up a third misunderstanding. Look at verse 25. He says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Uh, Now, you want to circle that phrase, figures of speech, and kind of understand this for a minute. Jesus often would use figure of speech to make a point. Uh, He just did it. Did you miss it? He just did it when he said, in a little while, you'll not see me, and then in a little while, you will see me. And also when he talks about childbirth. Uh, Jesus didn't always speak in a way that was 100% straightforward and abundantly understandable and clear. Uh, He often spoke in parables in parables to veil the truth of the kingdom of God from the Jews, lest they would be perceiving and seeing and understanding. Uh, it wasn't, though, that Jesus was just telling riddles, and, and like the Riddler, he's trying to be cryptic just to uh, confuse people. That's not the idea. Uh, he had much to say to his disciples, much more, but they couldn't yet bear it. Uh, the reason is their hearts were not yet illuminated to the truth of the gospel. They weren't here yet regenerated. And until the Holy Spirit was within them and granted them life and awakened their soul and spirit and mind and heart to the truth and nature of the Father, they just wouldn't understand. They couldn't understand. Now, jot this verse down. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him 
and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Jesus is saying the hour is coming when the Holy Spirit will speak my words and you'll actually understand clearly who the Father is. And until you have received Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is with you but not indwelling you. And when the Spirit indwells you, your mind and your spirit and your, your heart is awakened to the truth. And then you get it. Then you understand. So if you're here today and you don't understand what we're talking about, you're like, Jesus is kind of a good man, but I don't really understand Christianity. Hey, I'm glad you're here. You're welcome here. We want you to be a part of what God is doing in this church. But you don't yet discern spiritually the things that we're talking about. And you can. And you will when you turn in faith to Jesus. I like what E.A. Robinson said. He said the world is kind of a spiritual kindergarten where bewildered infants are trying to spell God with the wrong blocks. I like that. Uh, we, we can't figure God out in our own wisdom and understanding. God has revealed himself through the person and work of Christ. One day, Jesus would tell them plainly about the Father, but they would need the Holy Spirit within them. Now, notice what Jesus goes on in verse 20, 26. He says this, In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now, stay with me. This does not lessen or negate the mediatorial work of Christ on our behalf. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's not saying you don't ever have to go through me. What he's saying here is that because of Christ, we can now enter into the sheep pen. We can now enter into the family of God. And we now have access, Paul would say to the Ephesians, we have access through this one faith to the Father. We can ask in the name of Jesus and approach the Father directly because of Jesus. Uh, we don't need to say, like, uh, Jesus, like, can you, I know the Father is a God of wrath, and I'm a little bit afraid to talk to him, so could you just, like, you talk to the Father on my behalf? Would you mind going and see if he could answer this prayer? No, he's our Heavenly Father as well. Look what he goes on to say, verse 27. This is revolutionary, verse 27. For the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus are in this verse explained that the, like the Father loves us as well. We have a relationship with the Father. And listen, it's not a relationship of fear. It's a relationship of love. Often, I wonder if some Christians who learn about the wrath of the Father, and that is an important biblical doctrine, the wrath of God, the holiness, the justice, and the righteousness of the Father. I wonder if some recoil from that and either just dismiss it, and we've done that in some worship songs, we just dismiss the wrath of God. Or, or maybe even more so, in orthodoxy, we, we kind of approach the Father with a little bit of suspicion. Like, you know, I know that I'm, I know I read about the love of the Father, but I'm a little bit suspicious that, it, that the Father really does love me. And I read about this concern in a book called The Whole Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, I highly recommend book. Uh, you read this book. And, and he says this, often the gospel is presented this way. God loves you because Christ died for you. Okay. What he says is, he asks, how do these words distort the gospel? They imply that the death of Christ is the reason for the love of God for me. But he goes on to say, by contrast though, the scriptures affirm that the love of God for us is the reason for the death of Christ. See the difference? Um, and so he says the subtle danger here is obvious. If we speak of the cross of Christ 
as the cause of the love of the Father. Like, God doesn't love you unless there's the cross. And then, and then, then he'll love you. He, what, he says, what he says is that we imply that behind the cross and apart from it, he may not actually love us at all. And so he says this on the screen. He says, if we come to think of God as one whose total focus is on exposing our sin, then we will become too short-sighted to see his grace. We'll be plagued by a spirit of doubting and mistrusting the Father of lights who gives his good gifts to us. We'll find that we become incapable of responding to him and his law within the father-child bond of love. Neither the Old Testament believer nor the Savior severed the law of God from his gracious person. It was not legalism for Jesus to do everything his Father commanded him, nor is it for us. Listen, you need to know and experience the love of your heavenly Father and not doubt it. Here, before the cross, Jesus says, before the cross, the Father himself loves you. William Barclay says, here Jesus is saying, you can go to God because he loves you. And he's saying that before the cross. He did not die to change God into love. He died to tell us that God is love. He came not because God so hated the world, but because God so loved the world. Jesus brought to men the love of God. Now, in verse 28, we have as clear and concise a picture of the gospel as perhaps any other verse in all the Bible. Look at verse 28. This is the gospel really summarized. He says, I came from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. There it is. Jesus says, I came from the Father. There's the deity of Jesus. He says, I've come into the world. There's the incarnation of Jesus. He says, I'm leaving the world. In that one phrase is the resurrection, uh, the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus. No wonder his disciples say in verse 29, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. See, what seemed to be a mystery, Jesus clears up and speaks plainly. Now, even though the disciples are affirming their faith in Jesus here, they may not fully understand what they were getting into. Remember, I just said they, they weren't yet indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They weren't yet regenerated. So the word believe here, this is prior to the resurrection, and it's not salvific. This was not a saving faith. Okay, even demons believe that Jesus came from God, and they shudder, James says. Uh, but demons do not place their faith in Christ for salvation. They're not dependent upon the finished work of Christ on their behalf. And so the disciples here are making a profession of faith, but it's not realistic. And that's why Jesus says in verse 31, oh, do you now believe? Well, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. And I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Church, this is the fourth misconception that gets cleared up. It's our fourth point this morning. Jesus is going to kind of turn this idea around that if you have this misidea, this misconception that following Jesus means peace in life, no, he, he says, no, this is going to become persecution. He says, no, the faith you're affirming is about to be shaken. Just think about what happens right after this. Uh, they're all going to be scattered, each of them. They're going to turn tail and run home, and they're going to leave Jesus alone. They're not going to stand firm in their faith, even to their own crucifixion. They're going to run and abandon him. But Jesus says, I'm not going to be left alone. The Father is with me. 
I find it fascinating that Jesus didn't endure the cross alone. The Father was with him. Spurgeon says this, I remember that passage about Abraham going with Isaac to Mount Moriah, where Isaac was to be offered up. It is written, so they went both of them together. So did the eternal Father and his well-beloved Son when God was about to give up his own son to death. There was no divided purpose. They went both of them together. Man, I am so thankful that Jesus doesn't set up his disciples or us by proxy with kind of a fairy tale sort of expectation of following Jesus. Have you ever been presented a gospel in that way? Like just come to Jesus, like you get a puppy today. All of your dreams are gonna come true. Everything you've ever wanted and missed out on, he's gonna make up for. You kind of have been given that expectation. You'll never experience any problems. No, Jesus says in this world you will have tribulation. Uh, the word for tribulation is trouble, distress, affliction. It's the same word Jesus used earlier about having pain in childbirth. Now, listen, Jesus was not giving them false hope. He's saying you're going to run into the current of this world and you're going to live a life under the sun marked by pain. Now, some of you have been living that kind of life. Your life has just been marked by disappointment and pain and sorrow. And, he's, and he says that's... You're going to face that as you follow me. You're going to face a life of persecution. What does Jesus say then? Does you, just, oh, sign up. Who wants to sign up for that? He says, but listen, take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Notice, church, Jesus did not say, you're going to have tribulation, so just try harder. He didn't say, times are going to be tough, so cheer up in those moments. Band together. No, he didn't say, run away from the difficulty or speak blessing and prosperity over your life. No, he says, take heart take heart why because i have overcome the world we take heart again in the the person and work of jesus we can be of good courage because jesus reigns victorious and his victory his victory becomes our victory i mean think of how jesus overcame the world we learned recently about the world and that we're not of this world and, and that jesus says here i've overcome the world just think of these two parallels uh, Charles Ross Weed um, had this poem uh, that he wrote, and I thought this was kind of cool. Uh, the difference between Jesus and Alexander the Great. It's kind of cool. He says, Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on the throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth. The other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood the other gave his own. One won the world in life and lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one in Calvary. One gained all for self and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. One won all the earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever died, the Jew forever lives. He loses all who only gets and wins all who truly gives. Love that, love that picture. Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And so what hope can we have as we look at a life seemingly full of despair, seemingly full of sorrow and persecution, and yet in the midst of that, Jesus says, but take heart. Not just because you'll overcome the world. Take heart because I've overcome the world. 
and I've risen from the dead, and you can place your hope in me. Now, if we were to apply this section of Scripture, uh, before we get into the prayer of Jesus next week, uh, I would apply it in four ways. So if you're taking note, we like to give you some take-home points uh, to go home and kind of chew on and consider, talk to your family about, apply these, um, this passage in these ways. Four, four ways we can apply this. Number one, like the disciples, I want to encourage us to anchor our joy in the resurrection hope. Jesus says that sorrow will become joy. Why? Because it's rooted in the person and work of Christ. More specifically, it's rooted in the hope of his resurrection. Uh, one pastor observed that we, we tend to hang the heaviest weights from the thinnest wires. What does he mean by that? He means that we have happiness on fragile things that easily and quickly can break and be taken from us. Things like our health, things like our family, our friends, our jobs, homes, possessions. These are all good blessings from the Lord, but they're inadequate as a foundation for lasting joy because they're, they're uncertain, they're, they're transitory. So in the world of trouble, we, I want to encourage us to anchor our joy in the resurrection hope of Christ. Uh, I've been crucified with Christ, so I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, so that means now I'm risen with Christ, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realm, so I'm not going to anchor my joy in temporal stuff, but in the hope of his resurrection power. I'm looking to, ahead to the reward. That's where my joy is. That's why I do what I do. Even if my life should end, I want to pursue that with joy. Secondly, uh, like the disciples, I want to apply this this way, that we would anchor our love in the Father's affection. Listen, you need to know and experience the love of your heavenly Father and not doubt it. Here, before the cross, Jesus says, the Father himself loves you because you've believed in me. Listen, if I spent even just two minutes this morning addressing some of the father wounds that we have in this church, I imagine I would strike nerves in almost all of our hearts. Many of us have a misunderstanding about our Heavenly Father's nature and love for us because who he is is marred by a negative relationship or experience with our earthly fathers. But listen, the Father in heaven loves you in Christ. But before the cross, you were loved. Do you understand the depths of the Father's love for you? The great hymn, The Love of God, says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill and every man a, a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Listen, God doesn't love you because Jesus went to the cross. No, Jesus went to the cross because the Father loves you. So anchor your love in the affections of your heavenly Father. How do I love others? Well, I, I love because I, he first loved me. That's how I love. How do I express love to those people in my life who are unlovely? Don't raise your hand. We all have them. How do I love the unlovely? Well, how did the Father express his love to you and to me, the most unlovely? Well, that's how we we're to do it. He loved us, and we are to express that love to others. So anchor your love in the Father's affections. Well, thirdly, to apply this, I would say that like the disciples, we need to anchor our faith in the finished work of Christ. What would change after Gethsemane? 
Uh, the disciples are going to scatter. They're going to abandon. They're even going to deny Jesus as their Lord. He's about to be crucified and then risen. And once he rose again, then their faith would once again be strengthened. They didn't have faith in Peter. They didn't have faith in Thomas, but in the finished work of Christ on their behalf. And they went out boldly by the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming the gospel. So like the disciples, may we anchor our faith not in one another, not in church attendance, uh, not in how consistent our Bible reading is, or how faithful we are to keep his commands. If, you're, if you are anchoring your faith in those things, then uh, you're, gonna, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. You're going to be awfully disappointed. How do I know? How do I know that? Well, how, I just have a question for you. How are your resolutions going so far? How, how are you? Remember those? Remember those resolutions we came up with on January 1st or really smart December of last year? Uh, how are you doing now that it's the first week of March? How are those going? How are those going? Well, still going strong, aren't you? Yeah, not so much. 95% of us this morning just felt a wave of a surge of shame and guilt as we realized, yep, I failed in that one. That was, that was a good, it was a good try. I was just going to eat salad for 2019. That was a good try. And then that one thing was happening and I don't know, I just I had a steak. It just, uh, 95% of us just felt guilt and shame. The other 5% just felt a wave of pride as we realized I am keeping the resolutions. Well, guess what? Both of them are sin. So all of us hashtag failed. All right. Listen, if that's where our faith is anchored, we're going to find our boat drifting easily in, in, any, in any storm, with every wind and wave. Anchor your faith in Christ and know today that Jesus declares from the cross to Telestai, it is finished. Rest today in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Have faith and let your faith be anchored in what Christ is, not how great you are in your own faith. Finally, like the disciples, last idea here, Anchor your peace. Anchor your peace in the presence of Christ. But where do we turn to for peace? Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But then he encourages us to fix our eyes on him, the overcomer. You and I are going to experience trouble, pain, suffering, trials, and difficulty uh, this side of heaven. So where do we anchor our peace? Jesus says, you, you anchor it in me. He gives the peace that surpasses all understanding. And I wonder if some of us are trying to anchor our peace in the peace that comes from understanding. Like, I just need to know why I'm going through this trial. Once I know why, then I'll have peace. No. He promises to give the peace that surpasses understanding. So we don't look for peace from the storm, but peace in the storm. He's asleep in the boat with his disciples. We can have peace in the midst. He's with those, those men, those young men in the fire. There is a fourth like the Son of Man. He's there in the midst of the trial. And he says, in me, you, know, you will have peace. So as we close, I want to invite our worship team forward. And we're going to receive the elements as we do this song. Our ushers are going to prepare the elements. We're going to take communion together. I want to encourage you, if you're not a believer, a follower of Jesus yet, that you would abstain. Just let the tray pass by. We're going to take one of the pieces of bread, one of the um, cups of juice, and just hang on to those. I figured out a trick. If you put the bread in your lap, then you can take the next tray and, and, and hold the cup. Um, so we're going to receive that in a moment. If you're not a believer, let the elements pass by. But I have a pastor's challenge as we close. Did you catch the promises in verse 33? You can close your Bibles. I'll put them on the screen. There's two promises in verse 33. Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. But then he says, I've overcome the world. Charles Swindoll said, often life is like a roller coaster. 
And when life is good, we're on the mountain. And then when life is bad, we're in the valley. And Swindoll, and, and maybe that's your experience. But Swindoll challenges that mindset and he says, I don't experience life like that. It's not like everything's good and then everything's bad. He says, it's more like a railroad track where on one side, as I'm living life, there's a lot of difficulty, but then there's also a lot of favor and blessing. And they kind of run parallel to one another. So on one side, we have tribulation and trouble in this world. But, but then at the same time, running alongside that, we have someone who himself has overcome the world. And the two run parallel and constant. So what is our response? Swindoll says our response is to live in the tension of the command that Jesus gave in that verse, which is take heart. We, that's my challenge for us this morning, that we would live out the command, take heart heart. Take heart, church, though the world slay you. Take heart, though many, even in the church, may fall away. Take heart, though you may find yourself alone and overwhelmed. Take heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. As a third century man was approaching death, he wrote these last words to a friend. He said, it's a bad world. It's an incredibly bad world. But I've discovered in the midst of it, a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret, found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They're masters of their souls. They've overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I'm one of them. Are you? Have you received Jesus? See, the truth is, on the day of judgment, he will turn mourning into dancing, sorrow into joy for the believer. But for the unbeliever, dancing will turn into mourning. Joy will become sorrow as the penalty of your sin brings about the eternal wrath of God. You can either experience the wrath of the Father or the love of the Father. But to experience his forgiveness, you must turn from your sin and receive Christ. As the service concludes later, if you want to know more about Jesus, I want to invite you to speak to me. One of the elders will be available to share with you, uh, talk with you what it means to know Jesus. But church, can we bow our heads? I want to pray for us. And then we'll distribute the elements. Just hang on to them. We'll take them together. I want to pray for us. Lord, I ask for our church today that we would be those who live in that tension of taking heart. Though the world will present trouble to us, we thank you that you've overcome the world. So, Lord, we look to you. We walk with you. We trust you. And, Lord, it's not us. It's not something in us that we can produce this, but it's only Christ in us. So, Lord, as we close this time and we hold on to the elements, let us just consider the personal work of Jesus on our behalf. We love you. We commit the rest of our service to you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.